0: This is a sermon from the Highless Congregation of Park Church. We hope it helps you walk with the Lord and lead others to Christ. Learn more and find more resources at parkchurch.org. So Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to see you all. My name is Gary, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Looking forward to getting into this passage with you all. I've been looking forward to this Sunday for a long time. Uh, Before we do, just one quick announcement. Um, on Monday, October 18th, we're going to be having a seminar uh, here at the building at the Highlands building called Trauma and Grief in the COVID-19 Era. Uh, one of the things that uh, I feel like I've learned a lot about over the past four or five years is the importance of actually taking time to slow down and process the losses of life, the griefs of life, the trauma we've experienced. Kind of in my Christian formation, I never had much of an understanding or a space of how to process those things. Often I use theology, good theology. To kind of suppress my emotions, I use truths about God, about God's sovereignty or his character or something to kind of convince myself that I shouldn't feel uh, certain things. I shouldn't feel certain losses. After all, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's true and that's good, but often I didn't uh, give myself space to actually feel and process the losses and how those affected me and shaped me in different ways. And a huge kind of part of my journey over the past four or five years has been slowing down to kind of process my own emotional journey with God and the things that I experienced earlier in my life that made me shut down aspects of who I was. And I've learned through that, that this is pretty common for us as humans. We find ways to kind of navigate around the harder emotions when actually God has something for us in the middle of them. There are things he wants to teach us, to deepen in us, to grow in us as we work through trauma and grief. And over the past couple of years with COVID-19, all the things that happened uh, and all the losses. I feel like every time I'm talking to different people at different moments in their story, whether it's high schoolers or junior high kids or children or adults or empty nesters or wherever you kind of fall uh, in your own life journey, uh, everybody kind of experienced different kinds of losses uh, over the past year and a half. And we just think it's healthy to create space to slow down and say, how do we as Christians process those? in healthy ways. And so here at the building on October 18th, we have a seminar, it's 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. We're just gonna walk through that together, actually have some space to process, but also learn how do we lean in uh, to God's word? How do we learn it, lean into his character? Uh, as we kind of unpack and work through the things that we're feeling and processing, especially the losses, the griefs, and the traumas of life. Um, and this will focus specifically uh, kind of in themes around the past year and a half. And so just invite you to that. If you think like, I don't need that. I don't feel any losses in life. You probably need it. <laughs> uh, you, uh, you probably really need it. That's what I would have said like several years ago. I'm like, hey, everything's fine, you know. Uh, And uh, and I think learning to slow down is a really important part of your own growth, your own journey as a follower of Jesus. He wants to meet you in the midst of uh, even the harder emotions to show you more about his love, his character and his power in the middle of it. So I invite you to that. Uh, This morning, we're looking at a passage that for me has become uh, one of the most significant passages in my own kind of past handful of years in my relationship with Jesus. Uh, And it's one of the passages when, when I'm preparing for a sermon series, Uh, There are normally themes in a book that we're praying around as a team. We're kind of thinking about where's our church and what season are we in and what might God want to lead us into and what books of the Bible maybe are things that would bring us kind of into those areas. Then we work through the whole book because there are things that in Matthew, I wouldn't think like the church really needs this or maybe this is really hard to say, but in God's goodness that his word is so kind of multifaceted that he often gives us things that we don't think we need. All that. All that. Said, uh, this passage is sort of at the heart of what uh, I was feeling as I thought about the Gospel of Matthew. Just the character of Jesus, his nature, his heart, but also his invitation to actually experience life in his presence, but also to follow his way of life in this world. And so um, we last week looked at chapter 11, verses 20 through 30, and we wanted to this week just slow down in these last few verses. And just linger a little bit. Uh, we've preached on this before. We've talked about it. This invitation makes its way into sermons and things we say often uh, because it's a theme of, I think, what Jesus is inviting us into as a people. So, my prayer this morning has been that the Holy Spirit would take uh, this passage and, in very specific ways and in very personal ways to you, invite you to find rest for your soul today. In the midst of the weariness or the burdens that you feel, that you would actually experience the Holy Spirit renewing these words of Jesus to your own life today to invite you to experience the joy of his presence but also the restful way of life that he has for us and so uh, would you join me as we pray that God would open up our hearts to hear his great invitation even for a moment just to calm your heart and take a deep breath And to remember that the God of the universe is with us. He's not far away. He's not uninvolved or unconcerned with this moment. Uh, he is with us. He's with us in a, in a general sense. He's with us, but also specifically he is in you. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're new to Christianity or exploring Christianity, he's present and pursuing you like a shepherd that would search after a sheep that had gotten lost along the way. He's searching for you, seeking you, coming after you with care and love. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would this morning, through your word, through this moment, that you would pursue uh, those who are wandering, but also that you would really kindly, humbly, gently invite us invite us into your presence, invite us into relationship, invite us to more deeply drink from your gentle, kind, loving character, Uh, but also that you'd invite us to a different way of life, a life that's distinct from or holy compared to uh, kind of the way of life that we naturally fall into in the midst of the world that we live in. And so would you transform our lives through your power, and would you allow us, give us the strength uh, and even the willingness to Heed your invitation this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I want to start with potentially the most basic question uh, that we ask ourselves among humans, and it's just simply, how are you? Uh, How are you? And I want you to think about that question. How are you? Uh, We have our quick answers, fine, good, so-so, eh, you know, whatever, busy, the kind of standard stock answers that we have I want to slow down and kind of ask beneath those stock answers not how did your week go or kind of how's life panning out but how are you or another way to ask it and this is maybe a little different just another angle into the question how's your soul how's your soul what words come to mind what emotions do you feel For me, I think it would have been hard to answer a question like that at different points and still at different points, it is hard. And so let me just offer some words and you just maybe, what, what of these words might stand out? How's your soul? Weary? Thriving? Overwhelmed? Numb? Is it content? Maybe it feels dead? Satisfied, alive, hungry, thirsty, dry, withering, flourishing, budding, distracted, wounded. Or maybe, again, for you, the question makes no sense. It's like I don't even, you don't even know how to think in those kinds of categories. A question about your inner life, that your soul is kind of the center of who you are. It's the essence of who you are. And a question about your own inner life is, is foreign, and, and that makes sense to me. In my own journey, that question would have been a, a really complicated, complicated question, a question that I probably didn't even want to ask I think with the pace of life that we live in and with the kind of uh, unending distractions that are available to us, not just available to us, mostly that we're pretty well addicted to as a society, distractions to not even slow down and attend to kind of the state of our inner life, just the quickness to dodge any sort of contemplative moment with phones or activities or commitments or work or TV or whatever it might be, substances that we run to, to kind of just not feel things, it's really hard to slow down and ask that question. But it's a question I think we have to ask. I think one of the greatest kind of threats to our experience of true formation and transformation into the image of God is our inability to slow down and pay attention to how we're actually doing. Our pace of life and our rhythms of life just push away from us any attention, and so we live our life kind of accumulating experiences or trying to achieve or trying to kind of pull together relationships, and we kind of stack onto this kind of withering inner person, a kind of exterior of life that makes us not feel the pain, and underneath that, there's shame and there's regret and there's guilt and there's desire and there's passion that just gets suffocated. Suffocated, And I say this again as somebody who's like felt so many of these things. But we have to ask the question. Today we're entering a passage where Jesus is offering an invitation specifically aimed at people who in their inner life are feeling weary and beat down. The, the words like withering, overwhelmed, burdened, anxious, defeated, confused, perplexed lost. Like these are the kinds of words that Jesus is aiming at when he says this in Matthew 11 verse 28, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. The word labor is a word for just weary from striving. It's weary from striving. And the heavy laden is a word that just kind of has this image of just a a burden on your back that is slowly beating you down, slowly wearing you down. Maybe quickly at times, but it is wearing you down. And to all of those experiencing that, he offers an invitation. He's inviting you to in a different experience of life, He's inviting you to a different way of living. He's inviting you into a relationship that is satisfying and that actually secures you in love, that actually gives your inner life rest. And we'll talk about the word rest later, but it's, it's more than just kind of like uh, a rest from activity. It's this idea of refreshment, a revival, a replenishing. If you imagine this wilted, withering flower of your soul, it's offering you a way of life that leads to thriving, flourishing, kind of a refreshing, a revitalization or revival of your life, a revival of your soul. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to take some time and just unpack the passage and kind of lean into a couple of just like practical things that we can do to, to kind of hear the invitation of Jesus. And we're going to look at the invitation really in, in two different ways. But to, to frame it all up, I want us to understand at the heart of the passage, what Jesus is inviting us into is a different kind of relationship with him. It's a different kind of relationship. And the way that the Bible will talk about the relationship is with this word disciple. It's the relationship of a disciple towards a rabbi or a follower towards this leader, this teacher, or an apprentice towards a master. And he's inviting us into this relationship. And it's really kind of the whole framework of the passage is working around this concept of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and what Jesus leads his disciples into, the rest he's leading us into. And so I just want to unpack it because I think it's actually... A word, the word disciple, we have it in our mission statement. We talk about it often. You're, if you're familiar with Christianity or have been around Christianity for a long time, it's a word that can get really kind of familiar, but often we don't understand what it means. So we're going to look at it in the context of the first century, what Jesus is talking about in the passage. Uh, and then we'll kind of look at these two aspects of this invitation. Uh, and I think I think that Jesus wants to do something in your life today. And I say this across the board. I think he wants to do something in every single person's life today, if you can open up your heart to hear his invitation to you. I think he wants to lead you to a better experience of his love, of his presence, and a better way of living, a more human way of living that you were designed for that will actually lead to rest for your soul. And so I'm praying that he would do that. Um, In the first century, this concept of a disciple uh, was a very known kind of uh, relationship. And I'll talk to you about it kind of in the Jewish mindset. It also made its way into kind of Greek culture. Uh, there were disciples and rabbis or teachers uh, in Greek culture as well. But in this context, the sort of Jewish background is, is huge. And so right here in the passage, I want you to see the passage. Look at verse 28 and 29. It says, come to me, all who, he- all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now he's going to unpack that statement in the next two verses. So it means to come to him. It says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So I want you to focus on that word, yoke, and this concept of learning from him. The Greek word for learning is mathete, uh, which is the sort of word that we use to understand mathetes, which is a disciple. It's a learner. So a disciple is a learner. One who's learning, but this isn't just sort of cognitive learning. It's not just going and learning propositional information and kind of bringing into your mind propositional information. It's not just going to school and kind of filling your head in the sort of post-industrial revolution kind of experience of learning. We think about information transfer, right? We're kind of filling our brains with knowledge. In kind of older understandings, even in other cultures, of education and learning, learning had a lot more to do with all of life learning. Like an apprentice that's following around a master craftsman would be learning. And they'd be learning not just information, but how to do certain things, how to orient their life, to grow in these skills and ways of living. And so when Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he's actually inviting us to approach him as a an apprentice to a master, a disciple of A rabbi, which again had a really common kind of cultural context that the first century readers would have known exactly what he's talking about. In Judaism, the um, kind of experience of the kind of educational process was a little bit different than the way we think about it. And so kids, when they're about four years old, would go to a school called Beit Sefer, which is the house of the book. And from about four or five years old all the way to about 13, they would learn the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. So they're going to Beit Sefer every day, and they're learning the Torah. They're learning Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and they're learning the commandments, and they're learning what they're called to and what human beings are designed for and what the people of God were called to live, and they're learning about the story of God and how God had shown up in different times throughout their family's history and their story, and they would learn these things from again, four to 13, and then they would go to kind of a ceremony we now call bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, which is the son of the commandments or the daughter of the commandments. When they're 13 years old, they've kind of memorized so much of the Torah. They know what they're called to and what's expected of them, and they would kind of graduate from that, and very, very few would go beyond that kind of educational mark, the age of 13. Very few would. The cream of the crop would Those who showed promise and sort of academic learning would go on and they would go to a school called Beit Midrash. Beit Midrash is like the house of study where they would learn different interpretations. They'd learn about the prophets and the writings and they'd learn more about the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. And they'd study it and they'd learn about different rabbis and how different rabbis had interpreted these things. And they would learn that. And that would be sort of our kind of secondary school. And they'd keep learning and learning and growing. And, and then if they finished Beit Midrash... Then a select few that would now have as their credentials, I've gone to Beit Midrash, I know the Torah, but I also know the prophets and I know the writings, I know the Bible, inside and out, I've memorized the vast majority of the Bible. And they would then sort of apply to become some, a very few, the best of the best would apply to become a Talmud or Talmid of a rabbi or a mathetes is the Greek word of a rabbi, disciple of a rabbi. And what they'd be saying to the rabbi is, look at my credentials, look what I've done, look what I've accomplished, look at my scores, look how I did better than everybody else. I I want to be your disciple. I want to learn from you. I want to learn from you what it means to be a a Jewish person. I want to learn from you what it means to navigate life. I want to learn from you how to think about the world and how to think about my life and how to think about sin and how to think about love and how to think about righteousness and how to think about philosophy and how to think about culture. I want to learn from you these things. And so they'd apply, and the rabbis would sort of assess their sort of applicant pool. Think about a college that's assessing some sort of selective university that's trying, you know, all these applicants, and who are we going to pick? We would just want the best of the best. And they'd find the best of the best, and they would then be admitted to become a mathetes of a rabbi, a disciple. And that's what a disciple would be. And then the disciple was then invited into kind of an all-of-life relationship with their rabbi. They, They were invited into a relationship where they'd eat meals. They'd see what the rabbi did in the morning and they'd learn from him throughout the day and they'd walk with him and travel with him and listen to him teach and watch the way he understood. And the idea was not only are you learning from him, but as a disciple of a rabbi, you're kind of being put in a position that you're going to carry on this school of thought. You're going to carry on this way of living, this way of acting as you learn to not just learn what the rabbi teaches, but live the way the rabbi lives. And all of it's happening in relationship. And so when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, what he's saying, he's actually inviting them into that kind of a relationship. And so the two kind of big categories that help us understand what is this invitation to? It's an invitation to a relationship. It's an invitation to a re- relationship. And it's an invitation to a way of living. It's both an invitation to a relationship, and it's an invitation to a way of living. In my own experience, in my Christian journey, when I first became a Christian, uh, it was, and I think I really did become a Christian at this point, so I'm not saying anything negative about this, it just felt incomplete. It was in this kind of vein of, are you going to go to heaven when you die? Like that was the kind of question that framed up for me, this like, am I gonna follow Jesus? And to me, Jesus was the answer of whether or not I'm going to go to heaven when I die which he is the answer to that. But the Bible is like, that's such a small little fraction, like such a teeny piece of what the Bible talks about when it's talking about what it means to be a Christian as some sort of eternal security or securing some sort of eternal destination. But for me, that was the framework. And so I kind of entered into my relationship with Jesus fundamentally thinking like, oh good, now all the sin I feel in my life as a teenage kid, like I'm not gonna go to hell for it. And I get to go to heaven which is just so, so kind of like such an anemic, not just anemic. I mean, it's such a small, limited, truncated understanding of what Jesus is inviting us into. And over time, I I learned more. I started studying and and growing and I got into Bible studies and started memorizing scripture and eventually went to Bible college and you learn more and more. And then it's kind of like, okay, now I'm like growing and I'm learning more about what Christianity is. and, And over time, like the idea of just a relationship with Jesus grew more, and I understand a little bit more of that, still felt all this sin in my life and thought, man, he's probably disappointed with me. I felt so much shame that it carried around, and then I learned more about like gospel centrality, which is a huge piece of our church, which is that, man, the gospel isn't just what gets you like into relationship with God, it's actually the foundation of what actually leads to transformation. We embrace our own brokenness, when we embrace our own mistakes, our own sin, and we learn that we don't have to hide that stuff, we can experience life with God because of those things. And so just learning more about, as I face the reality of my own sin, I learn more about the love of Christ for me, the mercy of Christ for me. And that was a really transformative moment in my early 20s, a shifting, a changing of the way I understood God's attitude and heart towards me. And for the next several years, finishing grad school, planting a church in Fort Collins, like, I wanted to be this, like, driven, high capacity, sharp thinking leader, Christian leader who sins. And I need Jesus for salvation. And I need Jesus for my sin. But but the idea of like weakness and failure and vulnerability and regret. And I had no concept of these things until, you know, maybe it was now about five years ago, just the beginning of my own inner life with all of this knowledge about God and degrees and learning and activity and achievements and church planting and God must be proud of me. My inner life was just dead, just dead. And I I could have poked at it, I could have seen it, some evidences I remember in grad school, going to church, and we're singing songs like we were singing today. I was crying up here in the front pew this morning. That song that John wrote was just beautiful, and my heart's like all around that passage right now. I just felt the Lord just like inviting me again, hopefully inviting you all, hearing you sing. It was beautiful. I remember in grad school, sitting in the back pew of our church and just weeping every Sunday, because I'd hear these things, and it felt real to me in a sense, but I felt no active relationship with Jesus. My soul was withering, I was studying and doing theology and biblical theology and learning exegetical skills and tools and growing in my knowledge and my soul, my inner life was just dying. And you can learn a lot about God and have no real inner life or relationship with him. You can do a lot for God. You can plant churches and lead Bible studies and lead your gospel community and talk to your neighbors about Jesus. You can do all those things and be really busy doing things for God and still have this kind of inner life that's just withering, that's empty. And finally, that sort of like withering inner life kind of caught up to me, or felt like my doing for God wasn't just like I felt falling apart in so many areas, and just kind of emotionally collapsed. And finding the love of Jesus for me in weakness, and in failure, and in brokenness was just a whole new part of my own journey. And, and that's, that's just my journey, right? It doesn't mean like when somebody becomes a Christian, they have to like do that. I have more twists and turns in my journey ahead. I know that. I know that, but where are you? When Jesus is inviting you into a relationship with him, how do you think about that? Is it about learning things about him? Is it about doing things for him? Or is it about his invitation into a relationship with him in the midst of your own journey, your own growth, your own process of life? which you'll have and has had. It's twists and it's turns, it's ups and it's downs. There's regrets and there's failures. When Jesus is inviting us into relationship, he's inviting us into a relationship with him in the midst of life. And this is the fundamental aspect of what it means to be a disciple. I want you to see what he says here. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. He says, I am gentle and and lowly in heart. Um, Jesus is setting himself up in juxtaposition to the sort of rabbis and spiritual leaders of the day. He's saying there are people that you've been learning from, and I want you to think not just people, but ideologies and kind of ways of living that you've been learning from. You've been absorbing a way of thinking about life from a certain source, and that source is leading you to this experience of feeling Weary from striving and beat down. So in the immediate context, the source was a religious system. It was a system where people had taken God's instructions for life, the instructions for what a thriving life would look like under his covenant love, and they had kind of contorted it to be this way of actually kind of lifting yourself up against other people or maybe proving your worth before God or proving your worth in a community. And so this pressure to perform just weighed on people. And I think that's an experience of a lot of people in Christianity is this pressure to perform. Like who who do you need to be? Who are you supposed to be? What are you supposed to be like? What are you supposed to say? And what are you supposed to not say? What are you supposed to do? And what are you supposed to not do? And and the pressure to be all that you're supposed to be, all that you ought to be is a pressure that will over time wear you down. It will wear you down. And so I've seen so many people go through this journey from kind of performing to kind of like this under this pressure to perform and, and be a certain kind of Christian that eventually they start feeling this fracturing, like who I'm, who I'm trying to be and who I actually am, you feel this division. So you need to shift into p- pretending. Like in certain contexts, I at least need to pretend, right? When I show up at small group, I need to pretend, or my marriage, I need to pretend, or when I'm talking to these people at work, I need to pretend, or whatever, I need to pretend. And I know now that there's something not right under the hood, but I'm going to keep pretending. And that pretending thing can only last so long. The shame and the guilt and the regret and the stuff that you feel wears up inside you and eventually it's just like so many people, that's the journey towards like, nah. Like just eventually pretending is exhausting and so we're just gonna let the whole thing go. And so even in that kind of movement, this idea of performing into pretending into just kind of like saying, no more, I'm done with this. um, That's what happens in this sort of culture of achievement and works and religious obligation. And maybe that's what you feel. Maybe you feel that. Maybe you feel like you've been performing for a long time and it's wearing you down. Or you've been pretending. And the pretending you're feeling the lack of integrity or the lack of like cohesion in your person as you act like this way at work and this way in your small group or this way with your family and just feel like you've gotta be more than you actually are. The real you is broken, the real you is full of regrets, the real you is hurting, the real you feels shame and guilt, the real you feels tired and overwhelmed but you keep pretending. That That will wear you down. Are you tired? Are you beat down from that? Jesus says, come on, come to me. It's a different way. It's a different way where you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. Why? He says, because I am gentle and lowly in heart. I love these words, gentle and lowly at heart. Uh, this book, Dane Ortland, Gentle and Lowly. If you haven't read it, it was like, you know, what got super hot last year, a brand new book. Dane is a friend and a great person and a gentle and lowly person. So when I saw this book, my heart was, Filled with uh, kind of excitement, and it is a beautiful, beautiful book. But I want to read to you uh, the way Dane talks about this word gentle and lowly. He says this We're talking about gentle, he says Jesus is meek, he's humble. Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, not reactionary, not easily exasperated. He's the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger. open arms. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger at the things you did wrong, what you should have done, and how you should have been better, but it's open arms like we see in this passage. Come to me. I'm gentle. I'm accessible. I'm here. I'm not here to ream on you or express my frustration with you or my disappointment. I'm here to receive you, to welcome you. We saw earlier in this passage that what motivates Jesus in his mission is a heart of compassion. He sees the Sheep, and he says they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, and he has compassion for them. His gut is moved towards them. It's moved towards you with love and compassion. As you feel weary and beat down, his heart is leaning into you, not saying get it together. You should have done better. You should have figured this out by now. That mistake, you deserve this. It's consequences to your actions. He's not that kind of a, of a savior. He's not that kind of a rabbi. He's gentle. And the word lowly, which I think is really fascinating, um, it's, it's more, it's different than humble. We think of humble as like a good virtue. In the first century, the word used here is about like destitute, of low estate, like the kind of, you go to a room and you're like, who do I want to be my rabbi? You're gonna look up. Like, who are the ones up there? Again, figuratively up. You're gonna, who are the best of the best? Who are the ones that are high and exalted? Who are the ones that everybody looks up to? And you'd be looking around and you'd see all these great rabbis with all these great achievements and all these accolades and all these things they've accomplished. It's like, wow, like them. And you wouldn't see Jesus up there. Jesus would be off to the side, destitute, like somebody that you wouldn't have even paid attention to. Low estate, just no self-aggrandizing kind of character in his body. He's just there, he's accessible. Like lives as if he's no big deal. Not that he is no big deal, he is, he's he's a big deal. Creator of the universe, upholder of all things by the word of his power. But that's not what his posture is. His posture, that when we think if somebody's like that, then they would feel like really self important. And his posture is just accessible, like you just go talk to him. He's the most accessible person on the planet. This is what Dane says in the context. He says, the point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he's accessible for all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. No prerequisites, no hoops to jump through. Today, there is a gentle and lowly Savior that's saying, come to me, I'm, I'm right here. You don't have to jump through hoops, you don't have to pretend, you don't have to perform, I'm right here. In our way of life, in our society, there are people who have felt really beat down by religion, but I think also the cultural narratives of life also beat us down. We looked in the context of this passage, starting in verse 20, that Jesus is renouncing these whole cities that have opted for different ways. And I thought about last week, we talked about last week, what's the way of life in Denver? And the way of life of achievement and accolade and sort of accruing for yourself experiences and glory and relationships and building your career and building your lifestyle and building your relational kind of like network and building all of these things up, like is a pressure that is exhausting. The rat race of American culture, especially in a city like Denver, is exhausting. It's fun at first, the experiences and the joy and the recreation, the playfulness and the parties and the relationships, but then you feel the loneliness and the isolation. You feel the weariness and you feel the overcommitment. And you feel just stagnant. And you feel stuck and you find yourself just feeling, if you're not there yet, it is coming. I'm, I'm telling you it's coming. If you think, I just need more, I just need to do more. That's the lie. It is the lie of our culture. More of the same will not lead you to a thriving soul. More of the same will lead you to this experience of feeling weary and beat down. So where do you go when your family fell apart? The family you were trying to build, it fell apart. But the parenting, you're so exasperated as a parent, so overwhelmed, you don't know what to do with your kids, your young kids. You're, you're overwhelmed with what's happening with your grown kids and what they're doing. Your marriage is hard. Your job isn't panning out the way you hoped it would. You felt like you should have been promoted by now or you're stuck in a rut at work. You're just feeling numb. Relationally, you're feeling kind of isolated. You had some friends, but everybody's had kids and it's all changed. You just feel kind of like just stuck. Anybody? That chuckle means a lot of us. If you didn't know what that chuckle meant. A lot of us. Where do you go when you have regret? Deep regrets, you made some mistakes. Where do you go when you have some big failures in your story? Where do you go when you've got stuff that's been tucked away in the dark of your heart for so long and that shame has just become like a friend that's sucking the life out of you, but it's just familiar now. You just feel it, it's just there. Jesus says into that space, come to me. I'm gentle, I'm accessible, I'm here. And I will give your soul rest. I will revive, replenish, nourish your soul come to me. It's an invitation first to a relationship, to actually just sit with him in a space like this on a Sunday morning when we finish and just calm your heart and say, God, I want to return to you. I haven't been with you. I haven't been enjoying the relationship. I took Christianity as attend church, go to small group, but relational intimacy with Jesus, which is the foundation of what it means to be a disciple, a Christian, has been lost. And I get it. I get it. This is not just my history. Like, this is the daily battle of attending to the presence of God. Here's what Dallas Willard said. I think it's so, so fascinating and powerful. He says, the first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the most fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God or actually living in the light of this relationship we have with him is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. But these are habits, not the law of gravity. They can be broken. In other words, we have habits and rhythms that really undermine our experience of communion with God. We wake up in the morning, we check the news, and we start social media, and we get the kids food, and we get them off to school, and then work's calling, and then we look at the email, and then the day kind of catches us And we start flowing with the day and letting the kind of river of the day take us wherever it goes. And we end the day a little bit exhausted, a little bit tired, a little bit overwhelmed. That conversation didn't go the way I wanted it to. I didn't show up in the meeting the way I wanted to. So we go home, and you get dinner, and then get the kids to bed. And then, like, what do we want to do? We want to watch TV and thumb through social media at the same time. and, And then watch a couple more episodes, and it's really late, and put it on repeat. Anybody? And we say, I wonder why my soul's not thriving. I wonder why. Well, we know why. These are habits. And so part of following Jesus isn't just entering into relationship with him. It's actually beginning to orient our life around his way of living. That's the second piece. And that's what Jesus talks about. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. The idea of a yoke was a way of navigating the burdens of life, especially in Jewish culture, the rabbis, when you'd say, okay, you're going to be my disciple. Here's my way of understanding Torah. Here's my way of understanding God's instructions for living. Here's the way I interpret them. Here's the way I apply them in all these different scenarios. And so you have to obey these laws in these ways. I'm going to teach you what it means to be a human. That's essentially when we're saying obeying the law. We're saying God's instructions for being human. And the way they would interpret it was just kind of multiplying commandment on commandment and case law on case law. And when God said, you know, enjoy the Sabbath day and keep it holy, what that means is don't lift this much weight, don't do this much activity. And all of a sudden just the kind of multiplication of commandments became this pressure that was just crushing people. And so Paul will talk about the yoke of the law that's just beating people down with all this obligation of what they have to do. And Jesus takes that image of a yoke, which the image... Uh, there's a lot to be said, and there's a really beautiful image of the idea of two oxen pulling a yoke and us being side by side with Jesus. I think it's a beautiful image that has real power. I don't think it's what Jesus is talking about in the, in the yoke here. I think what he's talking about is the human yoke that we people would put over their shoulders to carry buckets of water, to carry their harvest home, or they would put these yokes over their shoulders to allow them to carry weight. He's saying the way that the culture and the way that Religion teaches you to carry the weight crushes people. And Jesus is saying, I have a different way. It's easy. It's light. Even the idea of my burden is light, it's a sort of like diminutive word for burden. My my mini burden, my little burden, that's not really a a burden. It's light. That word for easy is comfortable. It, It fits you. It's the way you were designed to live. And so what Jesus is inviting us into is a relationship with him, but also a better way to be human just a more congruent way to be human, a way to be human that kind of is with the grain of the universe, where there's rhythms of work and rest, where there's family, but family isn't everything, where there's purpose in your vocation, but your vocation isn't your identity, where there's love and sacrifice, and there's forgiveness and reconciliation, but there's hope, and all of that, as you look at the way of Jesus, is kind of centered on daily communion with the God of the universe. It's being attached to the vine. The way he'll talk about it in John 15 is that a branch can't bear fruit and flourish unless it's attached to the vine. So if you're finding that the fruit of your life is withering and toxic and unhealthy, it might be because you're not living attached to the vine, the vine being daily communion with the God of the universe. And so the invitation of Jesus isn't just invitation to a relationship or some secure future like go to heaven when you die. The invitation of Jesus is an invitation to a way of living, a way of waking up in the morning, a way of preparing for your day, a way of going to work, a way of interacting in your meeting, a way of following up with your interaction when you find yourself making mistakes or hurting somebody, a way of navigating through the difficulties, a way of trusting God with the anxieties, a way of releasing your commitment to certain outcomes because your identity isn't contingent upon the certain outcomes. It's a way of navigating, a way of releasing relationships and actually experiencing a security in the love of God even when other people have their feelings and their opinions. It's a way of navigating through these things. It's learning how to unburden yourself from burdens you were never designed as a human being to carry. And carrying life through the way of Jesus, the way of coming home at the end of the day, a way of resting that's different than the way that the culture around us rests. It's a way of laying your head on, the billow, on your pillow, trusting the creator of the universe to keep the world spinning quite apart from your effort and waking up the next day and doing it with him again. It's a different way of life. This is, uh, I think, A powerful thing. It's hard for us to slow down and hear the voice of God. This is Henry Nowen, who has just been really helpful for me. He has a book on Christian leadership. He says, God's presence is often a hidden presence. A presence that needs to be discovered. The loud, boisterous noises of the world make us deaf to the soft, gentle, and loving voice of God. A Christian leader is called to help people hear that voice and so be comforted and consoled. And so be comforted and consoled. Again, this is what Dallas Willard says. He says, as we learn this new way, a new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings and so the question I'm asking is, what does it look like to, follow the, to take the yoke of Jesus and follow his way of life? Not just believe something when you're a kid or pray a prayer at some point in your life and just then attend religious services and do religious things, but to follow his way of life. And for me, one of the concepts that has been so helpful for me is this idea of creating, a way I've thought about it is these sanctuaries in time, sacred spaces of time. In the Old Testament, you would actually go to the temple In kind of ancient Judaism, you'd go up to the temple and you'd offer sacrifices. And there were things you'd do during the day to offer prayers. It's kind of fixed hour prayers throughout the day. There are things you'd go to to offer sacrifices. There are different religious festivals. And all these things are ways that allow people and lead people corporately to approach the presence of God. Now, we know that Jesus is with us through his spirit. That we don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship Jesus talks about this in John. You don't have to go to this temple or that temple. Those who worship God worship him in spirit and in truth. He's here. But you do need to create these holy spaces in time to say, God, I'm here. You're here. I'm here. You've been here. I'm here now. I'm paying attention now to your presence. And so for me, the question that that I am like wrestling through constantly when life changes and you get a dog and your mornings change because you got to take the dog out and that's a new thing to get used to. Then you have a baby also, and uh, you got to do that, and figuring out baby stuff at night so you wake up more tired. It's like, okay, rhythm's changed, life's changed. How do I create sacred spaces with Jesus in my day? Because I cannot breathe without them. You will feel people I work with, people I engage with, my anxiety and my pressure. If I'm not slowing down to unburden myself with Jesus, it's it's not the healthy version of me. And so what, what do you need to do? And I'll just share just a couple things. One, this idea of fixed hour prayer is old, old, old way from Judaism into early Christian history of slowing down throughout the day with Jesus. There's so many tools to help you. But what would it look like to wake up in the morning and instead of getting swept into the river of the day with all the anxieties and the pressures that are gonna come and doing that without the God who made you, without being attached to the vine, what would it look like to reorient your morning and say, first thing, I'm gonna remember the God of the universe is with me and I am not alone today. I'm not an orphaned child making my way through life with no parent. I'm a child of God and I have a father who's with me and loves me and cares about me and who is is for me in this day, and to actually slow down in the morning. And so there are so many ways to do it. I found this book uh, really helpful, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality Day by Day. Um, I've gone through it probably like four times now. Every time I feel my heart getting in funky places, I'm like, probably time to go back uh, to this. Uh, it's just a two-time-a-day model of slowing down with Jesus, asking some questions, spending time in scripture, meditating, meditating and praying. There's an app called Lectio 365 lectio three sixty five, which has a two prayer per day, kind of model that looks at scripture, meditates on scripture, prays over scripture, and really, I think, really sweet themes that they focus on. In the morning, in the evening, it does something like what what's been called the examine, or a way to reflect on your day with God. What what happened today, and what do I need to kind of trust God with, and what do I need to release, and what do I need to confess, and what do I need to do at the end of the day? These are just pockets to organize into your day to remember what you were designed to be as a human is not somebody doing this on your own. Not navigating through life on your own. There's an app called the One Minute Pause. that's based on a book by John Eldridge called Get Your Life Back. Get Your Life Back. And the One Minute Pause is a way that I've found in the middle of a day when I feel stressed out about a meeting or stressed out about the way something's going or stressed out about what I have to do of just releasing. So it's just this simple prayer, Lord, everyone and everything I give to you. Jesus, everyone and everything I give to you. There are burdens I'm carrying that are not mine to carry. And when I try to carry them and take responsibility for the universe, I get crushed. And so I release them. This is like 1 Peter chapter five. Which says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. All right, these are little things. And learning how to think about Sabbath, we're gonna talk about Sabbath next week. It's where the passage turns in, in Matthew 12. Sabbath and slowing down to take a whole day to rest. There are so many things, but I want to encourage you. What's one step you can take to follow the way of Jesus, to pay attention to the presence of God throughout your day? It's one thing, one step. Try something on. It might work for a little while, then your season of life changes. It's normal. But what's one thing? I think what Jesus is inviting us to is a better way to live. And that's what he says the outcome of this is. He says, When you do this, you will find rest for your souls, that your souls will begin to feel nourished as you think about his presence, his love, his gentleness, but also as you begin to live according to his design for your life, you will find rest for your souls. And I think if we were a people that lived with rested souls, peaceful hearts, the gentleness that would come from us, the humility that would come from us, the charity and the kindness, the love and the peace and the patience that we would exude, and that would be beautiful. It's what the world is longing to see. In a world that's full of harsh voices, arrogance, domineering, bickering, biting, cynicism, gentle, humble, sweet, kind, loving presence that's rooted in our relationship with God would change the world. It really would, and I'm praying God would do that through us, let's pray. Jesus, we need you now. Uh, We need your grace in this moment uh, to hear your invitation. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me in the midst of your weariness. As a prayer, I'm going to read this paraphrase from Eugene Peterson in the message. It's a paraphrase of Jesus' words here. Are you tired? Worn out? burned out on religion, come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to make a real rest. Walk with me and learn with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely freely. And lightly. Jesus, I pray you'd help us to heed your invitation this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.